Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of Buddhist Voices with me Chandradasa at the Buddhist Centre Online and I'm very happy today to welcome someone I have never met. We've been talking with various people about doing this interview for ages it seems <laughs> and we've now finally coincided in the same space. Welcome Maitri Pala. Thank you Chandradasa, it's, it's nice to have met you, put a face to the name. Yeah, why don't you tell the world where you're from? I'm um, from Australia. Whereabouts in Australia? In Melbourne. In Melbourne and moving around at the moment. And moving around. We'll never come back to moving yeah. around. But I'm interested in Melbourne. So are you a sort of native Melbourneite? What do they call? What do they call? Yeah. Peach Melbourne's? What do they call Melbourne's? <laughs> I don't think we've got a shortened version of just we live in Melbourne. You live in Melbourne. <laughs> Melbourneers. Melbourne. Actually, I lived in Emerald for 30 years, so I was always known as an Emeraldite. Mm. And then uh, that's about an hour and a half out of Melbourne. Right. Beautiful forest area. But I, I currently am homeless. Yes, yes. And we'll <laughs> definitely come back to homeless and <laughs> travelling around. But what I want to just get a picture of the world that you come from in a way. Because mm. at the moment you're here in the UK mm. for a big international event. But this isn't your world, is it, normally? What does your normal set of conditions look like? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I'm very familiar with Melbourne because I was born and bred there. Um, lived out in the country as a young person, and then been in city and suburbs since, bringing up a family. Yeah. Uh, they're now grown, grown young Many women. kids? Three kids. All girls? Five grandchildren, three girls. Whoa. And five grandchildren. And, yeah, beautiful family connection, and, um, mm. yeah, I really enjoy my time. Elderly parents and siblings, we all sort of, yeah, very close family. What are your daughter's names? Uh, that's Brianna, Jessica and Tegan. Hey, nice. Yeah, Hello, yeah. Brianna, Jessica and Tegan, if you're listening. <laughs> your mum's fab. <laughs> they do sometimes listen you know, listen to or read things that I do. <laughs> That's good. It brings in another aspect, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. And did anything in your upbringing prepare you to become a Buddhist? Because yeah. I suppose even in Melbourne it must be pretty unusual for... Well, it was 30 years ago, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, I, when I got involved 30 years ago. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all? Were it's you religious? Was it a religious family? Or? No. Family was our religion. Yeah. So what, what tipped it for you? How did you end up getting involved in something so formal? Um, well, I lived in an area that uh, there were no Buddhist groups. There are there quite a few there now, but there were certainly none then. I suppose in my 30s, once my children had sort of, you know, didn't need my direct attention every second and started to grow, you know, into young kids, um, I had a little bit more time to just reflect on the meaning of life. It was sort of, I suppose, a late compared to lots of people, I think. But in my 30s, I did have a bit of an epiphany that there was uh, was something else to discover. Hmm. But I didn't have a a clear way of knowing how I would do that. It was actually a link to a friend who one day just called out at a party I was at, uh, who wants to find out about Buddhism, and I just said yes. Literally, she, literally, she just called out. She just called out across a very loud, noisy party. She said, "Who wants to find out about Buddhism?" From whom? Uh, she. What was the context for that? <laughs> party. She actually was attracted to a Buddhist guy. Oh, <laughs> she wanted, I she wanted see. to go to. She was setting up the conditions yeah, to hit on him. She was. Nice. <laughs> and I went along, and it was a Japanese Buddhist centre, and it was quite surreal. We we went in, and these Japanese monks came out, and suddenly started singing Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. And it was almost quite dianic. It was wow. just very all this meta. But, yeah, from there I, I found an ad in the paper and ended up mm. in a, 
a lounge room in a house down in Melbourne with Buddhadasa running the class. Yeah, and uh, they hadn't even got a centre yet. They weren't long off renting a place, but they were actually just running classes, some weekend workshops. And that weekend, at the end of two days of finding out about Buddhism, I rather cheekily went up to him at the end of the class and said, look, you know, I'm a divorced woman with three kids. I teach full-time, three-hour round trip. I'm not going to be able to get down here. What will I do to stay in touch with the Dharma? And um, he just said, I'll come if you get people in your lounge room. Mm. And uh, he did that for a number of years. Every fortnight he drove up and talked to my house. That's horrific, isn't it? It was amazing, yeah. He's here currently. He's here, yeah, that's right. He lives here. He's coming back to Melbourne, but every time I come here, I always Mm. go and say hello. A lot of gratitude for him Mm. introducing me. So what year is this friend about, just to locate people in time? Oh, gosh, that would have been about 1991, something like that. So quite a while ago. So Mm. you're you're one of our more experienced order members in Australia, I suppose. At well, this there, point. there's there's a there's sort of this other <laughs> there's level. A big arc. There's this other level I call the Maha Order members. These really really heroic pioneers of Buddhadasa's era, and they're people like Magar and mm. Chidampa, Damanandi, Purna. You know, there's just lots of order members. Quite a few Kamadama, yeah, that are around that era that uh, really set up the conditions, mm. I suppose, for me to come along and and get some sort of training in the teachings. And they've done it, you know, while working and, you know, no money and, you know, I have a lot of gratitude for the conditions that were set up enough for me to come across the Dharma. And you're taking part in that yourself, aren't you, as a kind of lineage of <laughs> passing on, you, you know, you're, yes. you're ordaining people now, yeah. you're kind of... I have, yeah, I've yeah, ordained uh, Prasada Jata, who came into one of our classes at Emerald and ordained her, so, yeah, you do, you sort of just... It sort of rolls on, doesn't it? Yeah, the gratitude is a large part of that willingness to pick up responsibility. Often even when you don't feel you've quite got there yet, I tend to always feel there's more I probably need to do to be able to take that next step. But it never happens that way. (laughs) I end up taking it anyway. And then I learn, and then I learn. It's amazing, isn't it, this whole thing of... I often see this at absolute beginners classes where I live, that the Buddha sits down in a forest... Mm. clearing with five of his friends, mm. at least in the mythic story. Let's take it as a, an account. And if that doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. Mm. Like that thing of mm. human beings mouth to mouth just mm. passing something on. Mm. And there you are, Melbourne, Australia, mm. a place that those beings back then can't even conceive of no. in any concrete no, way. And people are showing up in your lounge and it's the mm. same the same thing. Mm. It's absolutely mm. astonishing. And I mean, even in just it's, I see it as sort of like Indra's uh, net mm. in all sorts of situations to do with the Dharma. Even the fact that we're sitting here having this conversation. Mm. I've never met you, but actually, I've been very aware of you in terms of what you're doing, in terms mm. of having that space in the forest and passing things on. And I really just want to rejoice in what you are doing, energy-wise, to put things out on the web. And I just, so many people in Australia are benefiting from it. Uh, we talk about talks that come out. We all look at the videos when they come. And because we are so far from where a bulk of order members live, it's been essential. It's mm. really linked us up. 
and yeah. it lets you do it in real time. Yep. I remember Keeps when, us current, when we used yeah. to have to send tapes in the, the mail, <laughs> snail mail oh, to Australia. Yeah, for our study. It's like they'll get this in yeah. two weeks' time. <laughs> yeah. And then that one person used to run off, Diane Mager was one of them, they used to run off a copy for each of That's us in right. the study. You mentioned for five or six, maybe yeah. ten people in a study. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So it's much quicker now. It's much quicker now, isn't it? It's almost instantaneous. Yeah, and here we are doing this right now. And this is going to be up on the internet. Your friends will be able to hear it. It's fab. <laughs> so you've been helping some women on to this, this next important stage of training, which mm. is moving into a Buddhist order, committing mm. one's life. But it sounds like you're going through a bit of a, a journey, literally. <laughs> literally a journey, literally a pilgrimage of the heart yeah. of your own this yeah. year, which was one of the reasons we wanted to connect. So mm. tell me about Buddhism in my pocket. Mm. So Buddha's in my pocket, the idea for it came out of the fact that I you know, had an amazing invite to come over and work at Terat Naloka, which is one of our, um, well, it's our main training centre for Europe and UK mainly, although some Australians and New Zealanders and people from other countries get over there for sure. It's in Wales, in a lovely place near the Brecon Beacons. And one day I just got this invite. I thought it was out of the blue. Is that an Australian-only appropriate wording anyway out of the blue this email came saying would you like to come and teach for a year over here or be on the team and I remember pushing the chair back and I was I had no idea how I'd do it how I'd make it happen how I'd leave work where would I get the money from to go but I knew I'd go Mm. I just pushed the chair back going yeah I'm going to Wales it was just the generosity of a couple of people a link from Parami through to Ratnadharani to them suggesting me to Tiratnaloka mm-hmm. that meant I had this amazing experience for 14 months of living in a right livelihood, running a retreat centre to help women train for ordination. And I'd had this sense of myself as this sort of little person, sort of trained back in Australia, but missing out on a lot. Mm. And so it can affect your confidence, really. And they're relating to you in a completely different way. <laughs> yeah. So I sort Just of dropped well. in that model and dropped into that and, you know, flourished really mm. in friendship and in confidence. And mm. I made it basically ruined me because <laughs> I couldn't go back to <laughs> it work. Positively ruined you. It positively ruined me. <laughs> so I was about to leave after my 14 month stint and I thought, I just can't go back to work. My what was your work? What was your... I was a primary school teacher and in the last five or six years of that, I was doing more well being work. So helping teachers learn how to take meditation into the classroom, working with non-violent communication sort of methods with parents and teachers, communication, conflict resolution in schools. So it was very valuable work, but I wasn't around the Buddhist all day sort of thing. And, and here I had immersed myself in the team spirit that can happen when you get together and you've got this common purpose. And I wanted more of it. (laughs) So I sort of had to come back and and find a way of basically feeling like I could just turn to whatever I needed to turn to dharmically in the Sangha. And I wanted to have a sense of how the Sangha was doing in Australia, really. I'd been away for 14 months, and for this, I'd turned 60 this next phase. I wanted to find out what I would focus on. Where was the need the greatest? Where could I fit my skills to help the Dharma flourish in Australia? So I just decided to write to the eight groups or centres. There's a couple of centres and there's also groups where people are running classes. might be one order member or two running one class a week, but they're still out there 
at the coalface, so to speak, doing it. So I wrote to them and asked if they'd like me to come and help in any way. Mm. And the Buddhists in the pocket part of it came in a meditation here on a preceptor's retreat. And I, I don't, it was one of those things that it's hard to explain mm. because it just appeared in a meditation yeah. that I would carry little Buddhas in my pocket and that I would ask for those Buddhas from people right across the tree the world. And I would hand them out in Australia. So there'd be a street level. Just to purview you encounter? Yeah. Just How many did you receive? I've got over 100 now. Fantastic. Yeah, How I've many had, have you given out? I've handed out about 30, because I only started in April, March, April. OK, right, let's model the process. <laughs> we're on a train. We're going okay. to Toowoomba. Yes. On the train. <laughs> in what way would I, as a member of the public, as it were, encounter this being, my mm. true <laughs> He's wearing this case around your neck, which you wear all the time, right? Yeah, well, part of the Buddha's in the pocket pilgrimage commitment, in a way, was I also had this thing happen in meditation where I just knew I needed to wear my case, which is a... Well, how would you describe this, Chandra Dasa? Well, well, it's traditionally known as an abbreviated robe. I oh, believe it, oh, den- it nice. denotes an ordination, comes from mm. the Zen tradition. Mm. And it's like a little kind of Qatar scarf around your neck that mm. is, in our case emblazoned with the insignia of the three jewels mm. and it denotes that you're a member of our order so it's a mm. conversation starter right I'm it on is. the train it is. I'm going to go what What's are you wearing that, that for? Exactly. because there's nothing specifically Buddhist on it it hasn't got a Buddha sitting on it That's so true. where it starts usually is people want to know you know, some people think I'm a Uniting Church minister or they have a guess, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it is a conversation starter. So I wear it every day and I've had some fascinating conversations with people because of this. But in terms of its connection with the Buddha, it doesn't really have one, the Buddha that I'm going to hand out, because just before, if I go to somewhere where there are people sitting, just before I get there I tuck it in. I actually don't have it showing when I hand out Buddhas mostly. If I was on a train, I would, because I wouldn't know that that person was going to end up with a Buddha. So sometimes I specifically go out to a place mm. to hand out a Buddha, and I don't want anything to be in the way of that right, communication okay. between one human being and another. Sure. So when does the Buddha get... Because presumably not all the beings you meet get a Buddha. There must no. be some relational yeah. trigger for you that says yeah. the right thing to do here is to have yeah. a, an emotional... Yeah. Exchange with this person that results in them receiving the Buddha. And that's fascinating, you know. Yeah, and you, you just have to call it each time, right? And you learn so much about yourself by not even deciding necessarily you're going to hand out a Buddha that day. So it'll have a thing of time around it. So I'm either travelling or I've gone to a city square to sit and just be. And on the way, I'll usually try and walk and do the third stage of the Metta Bahavna. So I'll watch people as they're walking towards me. And I'll watch what my biases are. You know, it's been you know, boring, interesting, old, young. You know, all sorts of things get in the way. It stops us really just seeing purely in a moment another human being. So I do the practice, and then when I get into the city square, I'll just sit. And at first, I thought I had to do something, like look at everyone and decide who I'd be brave enough to start a conversation with. But that phase has passed. Mm. I, I just. It's quite magical. I just sit and something happens. Either I start a conversation or the person next to me changes and someone else sits there. Sometimes it's through nature. You know, a couple of times birds have come along to peck at the crumbs of people's lunches and 
both the person I'm sitting next to and I have looked down and we've just started a conversation not even making eye contact. Hmm. Sometimes it's, it has been someone that's, you know, living it rough on the streets and I've just sat down next to them and started chatting. I've been in a blood bank and given out a Buddha. I've been in a hospital and given out a Buddha. It's, it's just, there's a time when I know that it's time for the Buddhas to come out. And so you obviously know the realm of intention that you're inhabiting when you're doing this practice. Yeah, yeah. Presumably the other person's got the duration of your conversation <laughs> to work that out, right? Or, yeah. to, or to work out their own sense of, do they trust you? Yeah. Are you trying yeah. to convert them? Are you, yeah. you know, are you, are you going to do something weird, whatever it is? Yeah. You can usually tell when there's a moment that they, they've uh, entered into a mutual space with you where it's fine. It's within minutes. Within minutes. It's within minutes if I've done the practice. Hmm. So how do you give them the Buddha? Well, sometimes... Once or twice, I've actually just actually bowled up to someone and started. But very rarely I do that. But once or twice it has happened that way where I've just moved up towards someone, sat down and said, look, this might seem really strange, but I've been given these Buddhas from people all over the world. I've been given some gifts, I usually say, from people all over the world. And I've just got this sort of urge to offer you one. And I'll just take the bag of Buddhas out and, and do it that way. Mostly it's just a gentle start to a conversation. So I'll tell you about my last one was in a city square and there was a guy rummaging through some parcels. He's obviously done quite a bit of shopping. And I sat down next to him and I'm noticing more and more I'm sitting really close to people because they sometimes slightly turn away. And I think I'm just losing my sense of personal space need. Mm. You know, it's just going because no one's really a stranger I'm discovering. So sit down. He slightly turned. He still went through his bags looking at his shopping. And I, I just sort of sat there doing the meta and, you know, just thinking, you know, this being who I know nothing about, you know, will have had all sorts of things happen in their life, will have had dreams and hopes, just like we do in our practice. So I just connect in. And then I noticed he had gold lame sneakers on. Normal jeans, normal jacket, dressed very normally. And I just said, wow, what amazing sneakers. And he turned around straight away, had these really laughing eyes. And he just said, yeah, they're great, aren't they? And do you want me to show you what else they do? I said, yeah. And he showed me they had USB ports in the side of them. (laughs) (laughs) So that when he he charged them up, the, the bottom of the sole actually was like disco lights. But it was broken and he was really worried I wouldn't believe him, but I assured him I did. I did believe him, even though he couldn't show me. Good. So it was great. It was just this a lovely open conversation from then on. Mm. And he just told me heaps about his life. And it wasn't until near the end, probably about 20, 25 minutes, that I said, he asked me what I was doing there, so I told him. And then that's when I got the Buddhas out. And, you know, everyone knows exactly what Buddha they want to have the ones I've got. That's been fascinating to watch. So they get to pick the Buddha? Yeah, I always carry about 12 out of the 100 Mm. I have. And they always know. They go straight to one. They have an immediate connection with one. And that's fascinated me because I'm not sure why that's happening. It's a bit like the Buddhas. One Buddha is choosing them. And sometimes we talk about Buddhism, but rarely keep it very simple. There's something so little actually represents something so vast, which Mm. is actually every human being's potential. So that's the real key for me in that they're tiny. Mm -hmm. It's an inverse relationship 
to the vastness of our potential. And that's often when people share things like, you know, their hopes and dreams, yeah. really, to be who they think they could be. So they're often very tender communications, and we end with hugs sometimes. And they're just not strangers. They're not strangers any longer. And then there's no sense of... There's a real freedom in not having a purpose after that. You don't have to stay in touch. No. You don't have to be pals. You're just... No, I don't need to know what happened to the Buddha. I always tell them they can give it away, just wherever this Buddha needs to go next, it's fine. Sometimes they ask, can they see what I write? They're interested in the blog, so I give mm. them a, a card with the, with the website on it. And one person has contacted me, a guy who's living rough on the streets has got back in contact with me and told me he's now off the streets and he'd like to catch up to hear other stories. He still carries the Buddha in his pocket. Yeah, so I might write about him, you know. But that's not the purpose. So I'm interested in, as a practice for you because mm. it reminds me of various art projects that I've heard of but in a way much more in-depth, much mm. more sustained. Mm. As an actual Buddhist practice for you... Mm. Presumably you're coming up against yourself in this fear of rejection, presumably. Got Risk, it. fear, your fear. You well, got just, it. Yeah, so but what? you know that doesn't last very long. No. Just so that's what I really want to get out to people. That's what I'd love to share. Like if I write any talks about this, this is what I'll be trying to say. It's such a short time mm. for that layer of separation and bias in terms of it dissolving. I must admit, I don't, know if, I don't know why, but I've not had one rejection. I would say every communication that I've had with those Buddhas has been really beautiful. It's like sitting at a node of Indra's net with the jewel. You know, so like literally sitting there, poignant, beautiful. It's just been very clean communication. Mm. And there's so much beauty in that. And often people are telling me about their suffering. Some of the personal stories that people shared about what's gone on in their life, it's been very moving. But this shining light of potentiality is there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, you've used a couple of times the image of Indra's net. I wonder, mm. actually, let's evoke that for people mm. so they get more of a sense of this kind of jeweled experience mm. you're having where you're moving around and mm. seeing mm. commonalities. Well, it, it is an image that when I first started looking at Buddhism, when it was explained, I took to it straight away. There's something about that sense of interconnectedness and everybody's potentiality to be, you know, this sort of shininess of human human nature that spoke to me. So I suppose this pilgrimage is a way of actually physically doing it and the fact that the Buddhas are coming from other countries, I number them all and so I, I write down whose Buddha gets given out. So that person is in the net as well. So the threads uh, that connect people up are, to me, they're like rivers of metta, which is loving-kindness. Metta is a word we use basically to describe this sense of open-hearted kindness that's potentially there in any communication. But often our prejudices or biases get in the way. So, yes, it's like there's this story that this net is sort of vast and never-ending, and in every node of the net is a jewel, and this is every you know sort of sentient being. And actually, it doesn't shine to its fullness until it's actually in reflection to others. Hmm. So I could go and sit at that city square and just do the practice, and I suppose there would be something emanating. But actually, until it's in relationship to another human being, that's when the true depth is there, there are all mm. the facets. And that can happen anywhere. 
And I came over on a, a plane and lining up to go to the toilet on an international 21-hour flight from the UK to Australia with a caser on. You know, people were bound to ask me what that was about. So we'd be just standing there jet-lagged and tired and having this really lovely conversation about mm. compassion and kindness. So it's a bit like anywhere is a point of the mode. It's just about our, our sense of being open to it. Let's pull the camera out a bit from mm. the, your personal experience. So how far into the, the year are you and have you already started thinking about what comes next? Or are you still quite just in the moment with it? Well, I'm officially four months into what now has turned out to be a 14-month gig <laughs> of doing it, going around to the eight groups. So I've been to two and when I get back I go straight up to Naganaga, which will be the third one. So there's still a substantial amount of time mm. left in it. Coming over to the International Council meeting wasn't a planned part of it, but it was a bit like saying, oh, yes, there is that node over there. You need to visit Maitripala. Please go. <laughs> so I did. And a Buddha, two Buddhas have gone while I'm here, magically enough. You'll have to read the, the blog. blog. Well, now we'll put the blog in the show notes as it were. So that's still, it's still unfolding, I suppose, and... Mm. I see it as a bit of a bardo state, yeah. which you know is a term we have for when we don't try and tie things down, basically. Mm. There was the finish of one phase. This is something that's happening so that at some point it will become clear what I do next. But I'd like it to involve full-time sharing of the Dharma, of the Buddhist teachings. Yes. That's the real core of it. Whatever I do, I'd like to do full-time and not try to be fitting in other things around it, like you know other jobs. And how long do you spend in each place when you go? It varies. So anything from you know one week to four weeks. Although in Melbourne, because it's my hometown, I sort of, yeah, we did three or four months there. <laughs> That's why I sort of blew out a bit. And I've just had an invite to maybe come over to Auckland when I finish. Uh, so maybe those Buddhas will just keep getting handed out. Yeah, maybe we'll just keep going. Some other people are doing it for me now. So some people are taking it on as a bit of a practice and mm. have taken a couple of the Buddhas and all they have to do is make sure they hand them out before April next year and write to me about it and I'll put it up on the blog. So that'll be interesting to get a sense of how other people take the practice on. Metal walks, I call them, just to go out for a metal walk. You don't have to hand the Buddha out. It's really important to give yourself that freedom. But magically it usually happens. Well, it's fantastic to hear about all that much, pal. Mm. People meta-walking all over Australia. Absolutely amazing. And on our way over to record this, we were talking about the difficulties of Mm. being quite far from the centre of a spiritual community, which in our case, Mm. the Tratna Buddhist community is still quite centred in Mm. Europe, particularly in the UK. On the other hand, this turns it around, doesn't it? I feel like listening to this, Mm. as someone who lives in the US, we are at some remove from this beautiful centre of practice that's Mm. happening in Australia. Mm. Mm. And we're really lucky that we get to hear about it because it's going to really inspire people. Well, that's great. Well, it's, it is a little bit having an effect in that way in that Manchester Buddhist Centre, there's a Mitra who's decided to do a coast-to-coast UK walk to fundraise for the Buddhist Centre. I think a, an order member's going with her and they're calling it the Buddha's In My Pocket walk. She sent me a link and, uh, yeah, they're going to carry Buddhas in their pocket on this so many days of walking when they meet people mm. be handing them out. So, yeah, seeded in Australia. Well, listen, thanks so much for your time. Yeah. And, well, actually, thanks for taking on that practice, for, in a way, letting that practice emerge 
mm. out of your experience and it's really beautiful to hear it sparking mm. other people they're shining in response to you interesting so it's sad mm. to you mm. we'll be back with more Buddhist voices on an ongoing basis if you like it take a moment and review us on iTunes it helps in the giant ocean of podcasts that's out there to have five star reviews so people get to hear about it and get to hear about wonderful inspiring stories like Major Palace. Thanks very much for coming along. No, thanks very much, Tim DeVassi.